This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and to hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from the offices of Cressa. This is your host, Les Smolin, Vistage International, with my co-hosts, Natalie Gosnell at Cressa and Katie Brewer of the Brewer Group. Uh, we've got a great lineup of guests for you on our show today, including, how about running down that list for us, Katie? We have Ahmed Ali, president and founder of Tista Science and Technology, David Yarkin, founder and CEO of Procurated, Tom Suter, and he's president and founder of ATARC, and Laura Ibsen, president and CEO of Elucian. Thanks. First up, we've got Ahmed Ali, founder and president at Tista Science and Technology. Welcome, Ahmed. Ahmed, what's uh, TISTA? TISTA is a federal contractor. We do our specialties in cybersecurity and health IT. And how big or small? We're approximately f- over 500 employees full-time and north of $160 million annual revenue. And how'd you get a job there? How did I get a job there? I actually started the company in 2005, got our first piece of work in 2006, and it's now supporting over 20 federal agencies as a prime contractor. Interesting. Um, so uh, where'd you come from? Where, 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 where'd you grow up? I grew up in College Park, Maryland. We migrated here from Bangladesh in 1976. I grew up in College Park, Maryland, then moved to Bethesda. I grew up in Bethesda and currently still live in Bethesda. So how old were you when you came from Bangladesh? I was four years old. And you were an only child or brothers and sisters what? I am the only child. I had an older brother that passed away in Bangladesh prior to us moving to the United States. Was that the reason why you left? That was one of the reasons, yes. There was a, between the conflict between India, Pakistan, Bangladesh during the war, um, my parents thought, uh, decided to move to America to provide a better life and stability for us. So were you aware of all the conflict that was going on there? I wasn't as aware since I was still young, but um, it did impact me quite a bit, all the moving and all the uh, going all over the place uh, for moving in different schools and six different I mean, schools. once you were here? Once I was here, yes. Uh, so what was the age difference between you and your brother? Uh, I think it was about two years. Was he older or younger? He was older. Okay. Um, so w- were you guys close at that point? No, no, we're just babies. He, he passed away before I was born. Oh, okay. So you didn't really, di- you didn't really know him? No, I did not. Um, so um, you grew up in College Park and then eventually Bethesda. Uh, what were mom and dad doing when they came here? My father was an electrical engineer. Um, he worked several jobs in the private industry, then became a D.C. government employee, and my mother was a teacher. Uh, so were they always doing that when they came over here? or No, when they came over here, they had to work a lot of odd jobs to make ends meet, uh, get recertified in their degrees and certifications, and when they established a little bit, we were able to move out of uh, multiple apartments and uh, eventually buy a house in College Park. Were you, were you comfortable in Bangladesh before you came over here? Financially, uh, it is. No, uh, it, that's a third world country. We're always struggling there. Uh, but we had a decent life. But coming here, we had to start all over again. So started from the bottom of the barrel and slowly worked our way up. So I have a lot of respect for what my parents went through. 
And you were as an only child at that point. Um, were you pretty protected by your parents when you came over at first? I would like to think so, but because they worked uh, multiple jobs, I rarely saw them. So I was typically on my own between going to school, coming home, and not really seeing them. So I kind of had to find my own path and uh, accomplish, try to accomplish my own goals and homework and things of that nature. Wait, you, you're five, six, seven years old, and you're home by yourself? Uh, at times, yes. Yeah. And was sometimes we'd have neighbors. Uh, we'd have neighbors, uh, or I'd go to the neighbor's house, uh, neighbor's apartment, and stay there until my parents came and got me. Hmm. Um, okay, Katie, what are, you, what are you thinking? You said that in the green room that you had moved schools a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, because uh, we were, you know, moving from apartment to apartment, and um, so it, it changed school districts and school zones. So it was uh, very challenging uh, having to move so much. Never had a sense of stability. So as an only child, how did you establish friends and community? It was very difficult. Every time I thought I'd uh, have new friends, they were uh, starting new friends the following year. So never had a, uh, a very stable childhood. But it really toughened me up and gave me a different perspective uh, in life. And Tell I started looking at things differently. Tell me more. How does it impact your life? Uh, you know, we, we were not very well-to-do financially, uh, so it would always give me an opportunity not only to make new friends, but find new uh, areas to, I was always very entrepreneurial to find new things to do, whether it's trying to be involved in sports or trying to, you know, um, cut the grass with my neighbors or shovel their snow or do. Tell me a little bit about how early you, how young you were when you started making money. I think I was probably like eight or nine years old. I just walk down the street and see what I if I can clean somebody's car or shovel their snow or, you know, do I, uh, help move furniture, whatever it took, uh, just to earn a few dollars here and there. And why were you doing it so young? Uh, you know, my parents were always working multiple jobs and we were having some financial challenges. So I wanted to contribute as best as I could or try to be self-independent. And what did you do differently than all the other kids? The only thing I think I did differently from all the other kids is I was always looking for a new opportunity to make money. And how does that translate into what you do now for TISTA? Uh, well, after serving in the military and getting more focused on, uh, on, on my career path, uh, I decided uh, I wanted to start a business. And uh, all those experiences in life really helped me understand how to stay focused, more laser focused on how to get things done and accomplish, accomplish new tasks and goals in life. What did you do with the money that you were earning as a kid? As a kid, I, I started off playing video games a lot, uh, and uh, then I'd realize I was just earning money to waste money, so then I started actually buying things. My first thing I bought was a BMX bike, and uh, I think that really made me realize that, hey, if I actually work hard, I can buy some, buy myself something nice where I wouldn't have to burden my parents. So you saw it as a way to not burden your par parents? Initially, I saw it as a way to not burden my family, correct. And how did they see it back then? Um, they didn't know really how to interpret it, but I think uh, they saw it as a positive thing because I stayed away from trouble. Yeah, I was doing, in their mind, I was actually doing something constructive. Uh, but buying a BMX bike was not very constructive to them, but, <laughs> but uh, they saw it as uh, staying away from all the other influences that other kids might have been involved in. Hmm. What are you thinking, Natalie? Who were your biggest role models growing up? 
Uh, I have several role models. I think my first role models were my parents, having seen them work so hard in multiple jobs and, and struggle so much. So they're definitely the first role models. But other role models that really inspired me are people like Colin Powell, uh, somebody who's migrated from an, you know, outside the U.S. into the U.S. and really uh, worked hard to develop their career in the military and and the private sector. And I was always a big sports person growing up, loved football. My parents never let me play sports because they were always worried about me getting hurt. Somebody like Terry Bradshaw, I'm a big Steelers fan, so my, you know, my passion and goal in life, which I used to daydream, daydream about daily, was to be the star quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. That never translated, uh, but that's okay. I'm living vicariously through my kids mm -hmm. now. Did you, so you said, I'm sorry, um, you, your, your parents didn't want you to play sports. What were they concerned about? My parents didn't want me to play sports for the team, school team, because they were worried about me getting hurt. After they lost their first child, they thought I'd get hurt and somehow they'd lose me. So I'd always try to convince my mother, you're not going to lose me. I might break a bone or two, but you're not going to lose me. But she was always worried about me getting hurt in any kind of way. So Did it make it harder or easier for you to kind of... Um, you know, meet up with other kids, you know, create relationships with other kids. It helped me create a lot of relationships with other children because even though I didn't play for the school team, I'd always practice with them, hang out with them. Uh, outside of school, we'd still play sports together uh, on the fields, you know, outside of the team. So that created a lot of friendships, camaraderie, and still maintain a passion for me for sports throughout the rest of my life. Go ahead. Go ahead, Natalie. What was your personality like as a kid? I was very introverted as a kid, mm -hmm. um, and then I think once I, because every time I made new friends, I'd move schools, so I'd start all over again, so it became very frustrating, so I just became very introverted. I think once I got into high school and got into more of sports uh, arena, and then started getting into more on the business side of doing things like installing people's car stereos and doing more odd jobs along the way to try to make some money, it made me realize I need to be more of a marketing person and market myself and my skills, so I think that helped me break out of my shell. How does that play a role um, in what you're doing today? I think it, uh, my life skills have really uh, gave me the opportunity to learn more about how to uh, project yourself, how to be more confident, uh, how to lead people. The military really shaped my way of thinking and my leadership skills, and I'm very grateful for that. Now, your parents didn't want you to play f sports because they wanted you to be safe, but then you joined the military. You know, I decided I need to take a stand in my life and make a decision. <laughs> Since they wouldn't let me play football, I decided I'm going to join the military. Military is something I've always wanted to serve in um, because I thought it was a great way to give back uh, to our nation and serve in uniform, and uh, I wanted to be proud doing that, which I am today. And so I decided to join the military. But you also quit school in the process, right? Yes, I was in my third year of engineering school at University of Maryland, and I was just working various odd jobs. And I said to myself, there's got to be a better way to earn a living and make money and uh, finish my education. Hmm. So I saw uh, a movie, Top Gun, and uh, that kind of changed the course of history of my life. And then you went through boot camp and you graduated. I, I went to boot camp and uh, I actually graduated first in boot camp among 93, uh, 93 individuals and my grandfather came to that boot camp and he cried and I was wondering why he's crying. I thought he was proud of me. He said, I, I thought, you know, I didn't even think you'd make it through to graduate first. It's a proud feeling for the family. It's a great story. Ahmed, um, what's the website address? Tistatech.com. We've been speaking with Ahmed Ali, president and founder of Tista Science and Technology. 
Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders, and we'll be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. This is Les Smolin with Vistage International, and this is your business spotlight. Joining us today is Tom Tai, Chief Revenue Officer at Antiva. Welcome, Tom. Tom, what's Antiva? Antiva is a um, managed IT and cloud services provider. That's uh, a fancy word for we provide world-class outsourcing from an IT perspective, specifically to small to medium-sized businesses. Okay, and what's the Chief Revenue Officer do? So I'm responsible for anything revenue-facing, which means all of sales, all of marketing, and then of all customer success, also known as account management. So if it's uh, related to, to revenue, I, I, it, it falls under my responsibility. Okay, and what did uh, growing up overseas and uh, your parents were what, foreign service or dad or mom? Yeah, so my father was a, a foreign service officer, and so I spent uh, my formative years in Haiti, Bolivia, Ireland, and Cyprus. And I think, you know, a couple things that it did, obviously forming relationships and having to uproot them every two years uh, really makes you adaptive. And I think what it gave me is a real sense of empathy. So as I'm sitting with customers, it allows me to sort of put myself in their shoes because I've been in so many different unique experiences. Likewise with um, mm-hmm. my staff, it, it also allows me to, to be put themselves in, in, and figure out what's best suited to further their career. What do you think clients appreciate most about what you bring to the job? So I think it's um, one of my favorite things about the job is anytime after we implement our solution, it's great to go and talk to them. And you know, we typically talk to business owners, chief, chief financial officers, and to be able to see how happy they are after we install the solution, IT is actually working. IT can typically be sort of a black hole, okay. and we allow it to work for them. And who's the perfect client for you guys? Um, anyone that uh, is basically between 50 employees and 250 that relies on IT, which if you think about it is, is most companies, but generally it's education, um, nonprofit, law firms, and associations. And what's the website if folks want to get a hold of you? It's ntiva, N-T-I-V-A, dot com. Thanks. We've been speaking with Tom Tai, Chief Revenue Officer at Intiva. This is Les Smolin, and that's been your Business Spotlight. This is John Shuhart. Join us, joining us for our Business Spotlight is Barry File. Who are you with, Barry? I'm with Celebrate Fairfax, a yeah. 501c3 nonprofit in Fairfax, Virginia. And what do you do with uh, Celebrate Fairfax? I am very fortunate to be the president and CEO of the organization. So, what does Fairfax, or excuse me, Celebrate Fairfax do? We have a mission to celebrate Fairfax County and its communities. We serve the 1.1 million people who live in the county, and all, as well as all the people who uh, visit and work there. So uh, what do you enjoy about working at Celebrate Fairfax? It is the best job in the world. It is. We come to work every day, my team and I, and we get to prepare and plan and produce events for 75,000, 100,000 people, and we treat them like, we think of them like, like they're our, our friends. So, so we get to come in and, and just plan great events for them. What makes those events so special? We try to be unique uh, within this region especially, but we're always trying to stretch the envelope of what people expect from events. People go to events because they want to have great experiences. And for us, we are always trying to give them that return on investment because they're not giving us necessarily a lot of money when they come to our event, but they are giving us their time and their energy. And that's an important thing. People want that ROI back. So did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were a kid? No, never. I, I think that when I was a kid, I, w- I was... I was building things, designing things, and somewhere along the line I fell into events and realized that it was a natural extension for me, that I just loved producing things. So what was it about being a kid that led you to this? Um, I think that it was just the challenges that were there. I always tried to figure out solutions to problems that didn't exist, and uh, that's what we do now. It's it's the same principle. So when do you first start overcoming big challenges as a kid? Uh, I think I always was. Uh, I think that 
Uh, I lived in a household with two older kids, parents who had their own things going on. And I think for me, I just always uh, tried to find my own way. What's your website? Our website is CelebrateFairfax.com. This is John Schuart, and this has been your Business Spotlight. We're back, and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Les Smolin, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, David Yarkin, founder and CEO of Procurated. David, what's Procurated? Procurated is a ratings and review platform for the public sector, sort of like Yelp for government, that lets folks in government uh, see the reviews of suppliers they're going to choose based on the peers' Uh, reviews written by their peers. And how big or small is this? Growing. So we are a team of six uh, dynamic, really smart people, uh, adding 11 new members to the team in 2020. And it's something that uh, you got a job at because why? So I started the company in January after having been the chief procurement officer of Pennsylvania and trying to solve a, a challenge that we faced when I worked for the state. Okay. What was that challenge? Trying to find the best suppliers. So when you uh, ask a supplier for references, they always give you your th- their three very best references, which you learn very little from. Mm-hmm. So this is a way for us to share the learnings of people all across the country when they're choosing their suppliers. Great. Where'd you grow up? Outside of Boston. Uh, where specifically? Framingham, Mass. Framingham, Mass. And yes. uh, what was going on in Framingham, Mass? So Framingham is, was actually the largest town in the country, in the t- in the country 100,000 people, just became a city. Hmm. Um, and very, you know, sort of blue-collar, middle-class, middle-class town. And what were mom and dad doing? So my mother was a speech and language pathologist in a public school in Harvard, Mass., and my dad was a German and Latin teacher in Waltham, Mass. Hmm. So um, who are you more like, mom or dad? Hmm. Probably, probably a mix. Probably right. a mix. So what do you take from mom? So my mother was someone who was really focused on serving. So she helped kids who really needed her help to become better in the way they, in the way they spoke. And from that, I learned really the desire to serve others, uh, which brought me into government um, early in my career and, and still propels me today to, to serve uh, people in government. Were you aware that that was her motivation or was it something else that, that drove her to do No, she talked things? about it a lot. She talked about the kids that she, that she worked with and, and the challenges they faced and, and the pride that she took in, in helping them improve. What about dad? What was he doing? So, again, a German-Latin teacher, um, and what I took from my dad was just the value of hard work. So I would see him working late into the night, grading kids' papers, and really taking it seriously, not mailing it in. And, and from that, again, I learned how important it is just to work hard, and, and that's something that's carried, carried, I've carried with me through, through today. And, and uh, do you have any other brothers or sisters? Just me. Single kid. What yep. was it like being a single kid in that household? Uh, it was fun. It was great. I think the one challenge of being an only kid is you had to find friendships elsewhere. There wasn't a ready-made play date in your house. So I had to go and, and work a little harder to find community. Um, and, and that sort of sense of community or, or wanting to be part of community, I think, again, brought me into government and has been a big motivator for Procurated. Where, where your parents were pretty engaged in their work, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, were you kind of like left to your own devices to go to? No, they were all they were I think equally engaged with with with, with me uh, with my schoolwork and just making sure that I was growing up with the right kind of values and and I think that has been something that's been important to me with my own three kids to to um, to do the same. What do you mean? Just being involved in their lives, you know, asking them the questions, asking them the five whys, um, trying to understand what's going on in their lives socially, how things are going with them in school and and rolling up my sleeves and my wife does the same thing and helping them with homework and and being involved in their lives 
Interesting. Natalie, what are you thinking? Did you play any sports growing up? I did. I did. I was a, a mediocre uh, soccer player, probably an even more mediocre baseball player, which helped me when I was a, a coach of my kids' teams to be really thoughtful um, and compassionate with kids who weren't as talented. And then I was an average tennis player, um, but I, I worked really hard in the offseason to become a better player and to get more time on the team. What do you mean by that? So my freshman and sophomore year, I got very little playing time, which was deserved. Um, and so in the off season, I would run about three miles a day wearing 10 pound or five pound weights on my ankles, which was probably not the best thing for me later in life as my body has sort of felt the repercussions of that. But at the time, I think it did make me stronger. And I think it, it just showed the coach that I was willing to work harder than anybody else to, to try to get time to play. Well, this is what, high school? Yes. So high school, you went out, average player, and you go out running in the streets of what? Massachusetts, Boston in particular? Framingham. Yep. Framingham? The mean streets, yep. Must have been cold. It was winter. Did anybody question your sanity? Anybody who I saw, well, <laughs> while they, while they were bundled up in their, in their uh, jackets, and I'm out there running like a crazy man. So how did it affect what happened next? Well, it worked. It worked. I think the, the hard work paid off, um, and um, I was able to get a chance to play on the team and, and contribute to the team um, just because I, I worked I worked hard enough to do it. Yeah, but what, 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 did you get some kind of recognition as a result of that? Yeah, it was nice. The, so the coach, Al Gans, who was this amazing, amazing coach, um, he would make the point of saying, you know, at practices, you know, look how hard David's working. Um, and, I, and, I, and I hope that was a motivator for other, other people on the team. Meaning you weren't a starter at all. Senior year, senior year, I started on the team. Because of that? Because of the hard work. Yep. Huh. So how did you feel when he kind of singled you out for your work ethic there? I was proud. I was proud. And, and it was a validator to me then and I think through my life that hard work does pay off. And I think that's something that, that I've seen and I've tried to reward people who have worked for me for the work they've, that they've put in. How young were you when you started making money? So early teens uh, or mid-teens, I was a waiter at a great restaurant called The Ground Round. Great not because it was fancy, but great because it was just a great family restaurant. And you told us you did something after every shift. Yeah. I'd come home, and I'd, I'd go into my Commodore 64 computer, and I'd, in this very rudimentary spreadsheet, type in the tips I earned for the day, and I would keep track of them day Why over day. Why did you do that? I think it was just I'd, I enjoyed seeing in front of me sort of a validation of the, of the hard work that I was doing. And what did you do with your money? What was the first purchase you made? Nothing fancy. I, I was really lucky to have my grandfather's beat up, beaten up Oldsmobile to drive around and drive to school in. Um, and I probably used the money for gas. So nothing, nothing particularly fun or fancy, but, um, you know, got me from A to B. Very and, practical. And, and, and for spending money. My parents were both teachers. So, you know, if I wanted to buy something, I had to, I had to pay for it myself. Later on, after you graduated from college, I understand you got your first job working for the mayor of Philadelphia. I did. Yeah, I was really fortunate. Um, a guy named Ed Rendell, um, who took a chance on me. I was 21 years old, and um, I had gotten to know him a little bit, and he hired me as his press secretary. Press secretary? Yeah. How could he do that? You know, the job was open, and he had the power to, get, to give it to me, and, and he had faith in me. And even though I really didn't have the requisite experience for the role, he had confidence in me that I could do it. What do you mean he had faith in you? I'm sorry. Oh. I'm curious. I always like to ask the question, what's the best advice you got during your career? I, I think the, 
the best advice is, is, well, there's probably a few things. One is to treat people like you'd want to be treated. And, and I think the one thing I learned from, from Governor Rendell was not to hire people based on their resume um, or their educational qualifications necessarily, but really based on who they were and how smart they were, how creative they were, how hardworking they were. Um, and he did that with me for sure. I didn't deserve any of the jobs he's ever, he, he ever gave me. And how does that translate into how you run Procurated? Now, well, I think it's true at Procurated. I mean, I think we, we're looking for dynamic people who love to solve problems, who love to be part of our own community within the company. Um, and someone's you know, pedagogy um, or qualifications on, on paper are much less important than how they fit into this dynamic team. You're all about community. I have to be because it's, what, it's where I live. I mean, it, my, the, the government procurement community is a very tight-knit one. We all look after each other. We're all trying to solve each other's challenges. And that's really what Procurated is, in essence, is it's a platform that lets everyone in the government procurement community work together to solve problems by informing each other about how great suppliers can perform for you. So it's not just about the money. No. It's, for me, it's never been about money. At, at any point in my career, it's always been about serving and being a part of a community. And, and what I've learned also is that when you work hard and you're passionate about what you believe in, then financial success follows it. But if, in my opinion, if you lead, if your primary motivation is to make money, you might, but I don't think it's a, a very rewarding life. There was something you had said earlier about um, when you went out to uh, dinner with your parents, I believe, and you were looking yeah. at the menus. How does that play into what we were just talking about? What's the story there? Yeah, so as a kid, again, we, we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't go out to dinner very often. Um, but when we did, my mother would say, somewhat half-joking, when you're making a choice on what to eat, look at the right side of the menu first. The right side is where the prices of the entrees. And if you like the right side of the menu, then look left and make sure you can eat it. <laughs> um, and, um, it, you know, it's just, I think it's just grounded me, you know, um, growing up in a, in a very middle class family in a very middle class town has helped to ground me, you know, throughout my life and hopefully teach those same values to my kids. Thanks, David. David, what's the website for Procurated? It's Procurated.com, P-R-O-C-U-R-A-T-E-D.com. Thanks. We've been uh, talking with David Yarkin, founder and CEO at Procurated. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders, and we'll be back right after this break. Want to help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now... Email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, 
email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. I'm Tina Leone. I'm the CEO of the Boston Business Improvement District. And what is the Boston Business Improvement District? We work to attract, support, and connect the most compelling, creative, and ambitious minds in our region. Boston is known as an epicenter for research and discovery. Uh, Some of the greatest things that are invented, such as the MRI, the barcode, the internet, the first satellite, all were either conceived, funded, or developed by organizations here in Boston. How, how old is this organization? We're just, just shy of six years old. How long have you been there? How long have you been uh, there? Almost six years as well. Did you found this organization? Yes, I, I am the founding CEO. Why did you do that? Well, they, the, the organization actually came about uh, by the commercial property owners in why, Boston. Why, why, why does it turn you on? Why does your gig turn you on? <laughs> people. I mean, we the, the, the ability to connect people and then who knows? the next great idea is going to result from that. We have incredible minds in the Washington, D.C. area, and Boston is, as I said, the epicenter for the smartest people in this area. So your job, you're like the master connector. I feel like the mayor of, of Boston, the mayor of innovation, because that's uh-huh. what's happening. So your, idea, your, your thought is in order to create more stuff, in order to launch more businesses, in order to cause more good, it's a matter of connecting exactly. the right people. Exactly. And you like being in the middle of all that stuff. Oh, we love it. We love it. And simple things, just connecting people through events, through art, uh, through a happy hour. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to come out of that. Mm -hmm. That's what's exciting. So it's all about the people. And you're the uh, the founder of this organization. Is this a nine-to-five kind of job for you? Oh, hell no. It's a lot longer Uh than that, baby. So do you have to to work the weekends and stuff like that? Yeah, sure, sure. Let me have the website address of this organization. It's bostonbid.com, and and you can download Boston Connect mobile app. Let me have uh, have that website address one more time. Bostonbid. Dot com. It's B-A, give me the spelling on that. B-A-L-L-S-T-O-N-B-I-D.com. Excellent. Your name again is? Tina Leone. And the name of the organization? Is the Balsam Business Improvement District. And this has been your Business Spotlight back in a moment. We're back and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, Tom Suter, president and founder of ATARC. Tom, what's ATARC? ATARC is an organization that brings government, industry, and academia together to kind of speed the adoption of technology in the federal government. And uh, what does that mean? Well, I, I look at back to World War II when we built the Pentagon in 18 months and we developed the atomic bomb in two years. Right now, it takes about 18 months for a, a technology memo to circulate in the Pentagon. Hmm. Things have changed a little bit. And how big or small is ATARC? We're six folks. And uh, how many companies do you represent? Probably about 200 technology companies. Some of them are large-scale software companies. Some of them are out of Silicon Valley. Some of them are focused beltway banded types here. And, and how long ago did you start this? About six years ago. How come? Well, I had done a lot of work with other associations, and it was a little frustrating to get things done in these big, big, th- big organizations, so I ended up starting my own. So you started around six years ago, and what's different about this association from anything else you've ever been associated with? I think we look at it like a special, we're the special forces of associations. What we do you mean? Are, we can get, get things done really fast. If the, if the uh, administration wants to do an event, we can do something like in a week. We don't have to go through a bunch of committees to determine whether this is good for our business model. So you don't tolerate bureaucracy much? Zero. I Zero. Yes. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? I grew up in western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh, a little town called Aliquippa, steel mill town. Mm-hmm. And um, how would you describe that town? Very tough, very blue collar. Uh, we have three Hall of Famers uh, in the National Football League from that one small town of 5,000 people. 
so that must have had a big impression on you it did it was a uh at the end kind of like right before the steel mill closed and it was just a really really tough neighborhood and i realized i don't want to you know i want to improve my family and uh there was other opportunities out there just really really tough economic Mm -hmm. times there and uh, any brothers or sisters i've got two younger brothers and a sister and so you were the oldest i am what's it like being the oldest uh, we were really close in age, so it was really challenging. I wasn't clearly so much older than them, but we, we had a good, uh, a good childhood. We played a lot. We played sports a lot. We interacted a lot. We were really, really close. So what was the age spread? About four and a half years. In total? In total. Oh, so you're, I mean, you're your peers almost. We are. We, we definitely uh, definitely go at it. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I had to, my dad worked a lot at night. So I ended up having to help mom with dinner and, and managing these, these kids. And my mom worked as well later. Why'd they listen to you? Uh, you know, I, I think I had to develop leadership skills or they would run all over me. They, <laughs> I, I, my, younger, my younger siblings, they were wild ones. So I had to de- develop my leadership skills early or they would just run all over me. You mean mom just couldn't yell out a command and it would put them all in line? <laughs> she was pretty good about that, but sometimes she's not around. So when she wasn't around, you became basically the authoritative figure there? Basically, yes. Huh. Um, and and uh, you had mentioned dad was uh, working? He, he worked. Uh, he, when we moved to Virginia, he became a McDonald's manager for a long time. But that didn't happen until later on? That happened after we moved to Virginia. Okay. And what was mom doing? My mother um, was raising us when we were in Pennsylvania. When we moved here, I was about 10 years old, so it was in the late 70s, 77, and then she became a, a school teacher. And there was something about books that kind of influenced her as much as it did you? What's that? She read a lot, and she still does to this day. She reads like a book every other day, and uh, she's actually my grammar teacher, and she really taught me the value of reading and writing, and cr- she would definitely correct me every time I made a mistake, so I definitely correct my kids and anybody else that gets in the way on the grammar so i still pride myself so in you're that. passing that down generationally oh, yes um and, and what did you take from dad that you use today my dad had uh, tremendous leadership skills and motivational uh skills and mean? he just really uh yeah he just really knew how to get his workers and i'd worked for, with him at mcdonald's he just from that sports mentality, the coach mentality, the uh, captain of the basketball team mentality, and he would help and motivate them in, in small ways. Mm-hmm. Natalie, what are you thinking? Yeah, you mentioned that you're the eldest of four children and also you had 23 younger cousins. Wondering what your role was at family gatherings. Well, a lot of my cousins actually worked for me and my brother was a partner with me. So I was always in the, in the middle of, I kind of kept up with all my cousins and, and and stayed in their lives even after they went to college and graduated so I always look at uh, of that generation I was relative you know relatively speaking the leader in addition to that what kind of personality traits did you have that differentiated you I think that uh you know I I look at how I developed myself I think it was watching movies and tv I would look at like Captain Kirk you know in mm-hmm. Star Trek and I I look back when I watch these old movies, and I'm using some of the same lines that were in the in, in the movies, and uh, you know that was a big influence to me. Mm-hmm. I understood when you were young, you collected coins. Tell tell us a little bit about that. 
I did. I got very interested in it, and I was really interested in, in gold was a little bit out of my league at 13, so I invested a lot in silver coins. I collected them. I had a like a special knack for like when coins were jingling in my pocket, I could detect if there was a silver coin there. Why did you start collecting coins? I don't know. I was just fascinated with history, and I, I just started looking through my, my change, and then I realized it was a business opportunity. I, I saw... Uh, I was at an arcade and I saw somebody plinking in some silver quarters. So I bought them off them for 50 cents for a quarter. So you didn't just collect the coins, you actually sold the coins. I did, and, and I don't know if people remember, but back in 1980, the Hunt brothers had driven up the price of silver to $50 uh, an ounce, which meant quarters were worth 13.75, and I sold a lot at that peak. Wow, so you were an early investor. Yes. And tell me a little bit about uh, your grandfather. My grandfather was a big influence in my life. He lived in Northern Virginia. He was in World War II. Barely ever talked about that, of course. That generation didn't. He worked in the Pentagon for about 17 years. Uh, what but kind he of was influence a, did he have on you? He just was a very hard worker. He had what Angela Duckworth calls is grit, and I think he taught me that. It's very focused work. He always worked on his cars. He uh, actually started the high school that I went to, uh, a private school. And that was after he had retired. And uh, until he passed, he was working every day out in the, in, in the yard. He was cutting down trees. And, and what that do you really take from your grandfather into work every day? I think that grit, uh, that What's focus, grit? determination. I, I think it's hard work combined with using your intelligence to figure out how am I going to solve the problem. And don't stop until you actually solve that problem. He was very much like that. Solving the problem. Tell me more about that. Well, I think when you have a task on hand, and another to quote uh, Captain Kirk in 1982, The Wrath of Khan, I don't believe in the no-win scenario. I think that when somebody tells us no as entrepreneurs, we, we don't take that. You know, you can never start a company. You can't do this. You can't do that. You basically focus until you can accomplish that task. So you picked that up from, from your grandfather? I, I, I did do that. Uh, he was told many times, you can't start a school. It's impossible. You don't have experience. Um, just in anything that he would do, a, a car would be like, you can never fix this car. He would fix the car. Hmm. Yes. What, what are you thinking, Natalie? So you mentioned you had a lot of grit, but you also were kind of the jokester of the family. How do you strike a balance in your current role? You've got to have fun. I, I think I'm a, a, a tough boss. I think I'm fair, but you've got to have fun too. And, you know, giving somebody a hard time. And I, I think I got a lot of that from my father. Um, he would always kid employees, like somebody would call in and they, they would say their grandmother died. And my, my dad would say, well, that's the third time this month. Why don't you just come, on, come in and work? He would say things like that and, and, and get people to be motivated. Uh, and it just helps the whole team if you can keep it light. You saw him doing this, or you heard him doing this? I actually worked with my father during my McDonald's career, so I, I would see him do this on a, on a consistent basis, yes. And how did you know it was working? Uh, well, the, you, he, he would get some of the lower performers, I would call them the lower performers, and get them to really punch above their weight. Let's put it that way. Okay, and so how does that translate into how you uh, lead today? I think... Uh, you know, I try to hire some folks that I think that they have never, may not have been challenged in certain ways, and I like to challenge my employees. I like them to challenge me too. I think that's one thing I've learned over time is I don't want, I want somebody that's going to challenge me and call me out 
when I'm when I'm not doing it. But you're the doing boss. The you're okay with that? I've learned I was not like that. I used to like employees that were my cheerleaders and tell me how great I am. I migrated to I want them to tell me I'm messing things up or I could be doing things better and and I want them and encourage them to give me a hard time. Interesting. Tom, what's the website address? Uh, www.atark.org. We've been speaking with Tom Suter, president and founder of ATARC. Uh, thanks for listening, and don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. We'll be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. Want help building your business with help from the show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business, are truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, we may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com to hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last 10 years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, Laura Ibsen, President and CEO of the, at Elucian. Welcome. Uh, Laura, what's Elucian? Elucian is a software company and we're architecting the future of higher education in the cloud. Uh, what do you mean? We build systems that serve students, administrators, and faculty uh, across the United States and 50 countries around the world. And how big or small is this? We're under a billion dollar company, right under a billion, and we have 3,200 employees and over 2,600 customers. And uh, how'd you get a job there? I was sitting in Silicon Valley and a recruiter called me up after working in big tech at Cisco, Microsoft, and Oracle. I decided it was time to run my own show and fell in love with the opportunity of technology transform the future of education, hmm. something I knew a little bit about. Interesting, um, and uh, where did you grow up? Uh, 50-50. I grew up in the Midwest, in, uh, outside of Chicago, Illinois, and also uh, Richmond, Virginia. moved there when I was 10. All right, so let's, let's stay with the uh, eight years old and, and before that. So you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I'm one of five. I have three sisters and one brother. Where are you in the pecking order? I'm fourth born. Fourth out of five. Does that uh, bestow upon you any special privileges, being the fourth of five? 
I don't think there are any special privileges when you're five. You got to make your way and find your identity. Okay. Um, what were mom and dad doing? My mother was a teacher, got her master's in special education. My father uh, got his master's in art and uh, um, uh, was a glassblower and uh, moved to Virginia to run the art department at Virginia Commonwealth University. So uh, both your parents were educated and they were both teaching? Yes, both teachers, uh, professor. My mother was a teacher and then ran a center for students with disabilities at VCU. Does this have any particular impact on you, having come from a family with both parents fairly well-educated? Uh, I never thought I would turn into my parents and run an education tech company, uh, but it's been fantastic. Also, a big impact was my mother focused on uh, students with disabilities, having a cousin who was Down syndrome, and knowing how important it was to create opportunities for everyone. What's that got to do with, with what you do? What I do today is to make sure that we serve higher education, provide opportunities for any student with technology uh, and capabilities for universities and colleges, so every student has an opportunity for success. Hmm, interesting. Um, what are you thinking, Natalie? In the green, ro green room, you mentioned that you were fascinated with conflict, so I was wondering if you could just speak to that. Well, I think it was probably from very early days growing up uh, watching the news with my father, watching Walter Cronkite, and uh, not having traveled a whole lot when I was younger, seeing the political conflict there, uh, all over the world and just being fascinated with people from other countries. And is there something you wanted to do growing up based off of that? Well, oddly enough, after I moved to Virginia and in eighth grade, I had my history teacher ask the whole class what did they want to be when they grew up. I decided I wanted to be an ambassador. Uh, my teacher at the time said, you know, nice thought, but quite frankly, um, those positions are reserved for men, but you'd make a great ambassador's wife. That oh. sort of gave me the, uh, the gumption and the drive to uh, do what my mother said, which is I'm smart enough to be anything I want to be in my life. So it kind of conflicted with what you were learning at home. Did you say something when that happened? Um, I don't think I said anything. I, th I think I just checked it into uh, a challenge. And I, I love a challenge. So it was the challenge of my life. I'm not an ambassador yet, but I'm, I still have time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So your mother said that you could do anything. How did that play out in what she did and how the influence she had on you? My mother ran her household. Uh, she had five children. Uh, she actually had six. Her first child died. She um, managed the household. She worked full time. She had a lot of daughters and a son that helped out around the house. And it showed me that uh, after she got her master's and her PhD when she was 57, uh, she's a consummate overachiever. If she can do it, there's probably nothing I can't do too. And how did she learn about that? And who was her role model? Her, her role model probably was her mother. Her mother's very tough, as my mother is as well. Um, my, what did my, she do? Well, my grandmother uh, got divorced at a time in a small town that was probably relatively tough. She ran a plastics factory. and She uh, ran a plastics factory? She did. She was running the, the factory floor. And even when she ha was sick and she lost a lung, when things broke down, they wheeled her in to make sure that the assembly lines and everything were set up the right way. Was that she a was family also business? No, it wasn't. It was in a, a small part of uh, uh, Wisconsin, and um, you know she was she was great at math and figuring out how to make things work. But you were you're coming from a family of strong women, grandparents, mother, a, as a woman. 
that had a huge influence on you. It did. I think it was the reason it set sail. I was curious. I'd like to try new things, take risk. I moved from a role running government affairs at Cisco to uh, build and develop smart grid technologies, hardware and software. Uh, I, I can be a little bit fearless that way. I, I don't like to think about failure as an option. And uh, it just, uh, you know, that's something that excites me. And what do you bring from your grandmother and your mother into work every day? I think it's about hard work. I think it's about um, thinking about others, creating opportunities for others, and, um, you know, making things happen, getting things done. Who did that for you? Uh, I had a great mentor that gave me a phenomenal opportunity at Cisco, the former CEO, John Chambers, who gave me an opportunity to start government affairs, who taught me that technology can truly transform the world. Uh, he taught me about leadership. The leader sets the tone and the pace, and uh, that really grounds me every day. Um, I think we already talked about uh, you want to treat people the way you want to be treated, and I brought that home every day and what I do today and, and uh, with my family and also with my, my career. Hmm. What are you thinking, Natalie? Yeah, you mentioned you were four out of five with your siblings. What um, personality and role did you have compared to the others in your family? I was uh, very creative, um, music, art, um, you know, we loved being outdoors. I don't know, I think it just shaped uh, finding my pathway and being different from my sisters and my brother. I was pretty studious with my brother. He was the one who taught me how to think about math. Uh, when I had challenges, he would always repeat, go to the lowest common denominator. So um, that helped me out quite a bit. It's just really being part of the family, and, and it shaped who I am. And um, you mentioned that you were less of a cook. You were more of a baker. How did that translate into your first job? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think it's just finding what fits for you. My sisters are phenomenal cooks. I am not. Uh, so baking was something I could be creative, and it was finding something that fit me well. And as I look and explore, it's just about being creative and finding opportunities that challenge me and um, doing something that has an impact. Did you work for your father at all? I didn't work for my father. My sister actually did. Uh, he was a glassblower and a sculptor. I learned how to blow glass at an early age. And um, so the kids were out playing sports. And yeah, I played sports too. But um, no, I spent a lot of time uh, doing art myself. And uh, the money I made early on when I worked first at King's Dominion, I would oftentimes spend it on art supplies. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. What were you doing at King's Dominion? King's Dominion, my first job was running rides, the Apple Turnover. And, Excuse uh, me, the Apple the Turnover? The Apple Turnover. I don't know if it's still there. Probably not. And the Octopus. Uh, oftentimes in the hot heat, heat of the summer, you would be hosing out the carts, as you might imagine. <laughs> and then I, um, I was promoted, I guess, to guest services. And um, the uh, I would take VIP guests around the park, including... Uh, you know, political leaders. My my favorite one was Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, he was um, very uh, uh, very fun to tour around with his so family. So you were playing the role of ambassador back then. I, well, good point. I was an ambassador. Now I feel like I'm an ambassador of technology and higher education. Interesting. What do you got there, Katie? So you talked in the green room about um, playing the violin, playing the piano, being a gymnast, and diving. How did you get into all of those different activities? I, I was just curious. I loved learning. 
it fits me for this company too is just exploring and challenging yourself and I grew up with a father who was a creative artist my mother also was a potter but um, uh, it's the left brain and the right brain working together and uh, and so I, I I think there's just a great interplay with art and music and academics and language what do you mean uh, it helps you it helps you think out of the box uh, I find some of my best engineers that I have at Lucian have are both uh, musicians and engineers there's a level of creativity that happens between the left and right brain that I think creates new opportunities I'm told there's also a lot of math there there's a lot of math too there's a lot of math yeah so how's that influenced the way you lead because you've got this left brain right brain thing going you've got this all-inclusiveness and diversity and you have a very different creative if you will way of going about things I think I got it from my parents my mother was highly organized got things done never procrastinated my father was more of the creative one that he'd have a, the great idea and ultimately things would get done in a company you both have to set structure but also you have to inspire and think out of the box and look for great ideas from anyone in your company um, I love ideating with my team I love exploring the future and looking for a way to build more powerful capabilities and for the customers that we serve. Mm. Is there anything you can't do? Uh, there are many things I can't do. You can ask my husband, my children, <laughs> I'm sure my employees as well. Um, for me, it's all about building a great team and finding exceptional individual contributors and leaders and flying in formation. And that's how I learn too. We've been speaking with Laura Epson, President and CEO of Elucian. Uh, what's the website address there, Laura? We are at elucian.com. Uh, we've had a great lineup of guests today. Katie, would you like to run through who we've had? We had Ahmed Ali, president and founder of Tista Science and Technology. David Yarkin, founder and CEO of Procurated. We had Tom Suter, president and founder of ATARC. And Laura Ibsen, president and CEO of Elucian. I'd like to thank all my co-hosts. Um, Katie Brewer of the Brewer Group and Natalie Gosnell at Cressa for helping develop our storyline, hopefully delivering to our listening audience an entertaining and educational show. And I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a radio show. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Executive Leaders Radio, the region's premier radio show highlighting local executive leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the show here on 1500 AM. You can learn more about Executive Leaders Radio by visiting executiveleadersradio.com or tune in next time right here on 1500 AM. That's executiveleadersradio.com.